0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Katherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is New York Times bestselling author Andrew Schaefer. Uh, his new book is Hope Rides Again. It's St. Patrick's weekend in 2019, and Joe Biden is tired. Between a whirlwind book tour and constant speculation about his potential production presidential run, he's anxious to get out of the spotlight and back home to Jill. With one last stop in Chicago, he's looking forward to carving out some quality time to visit with his BFF, ex-POTUS, Barack Obama a cathartic escape from the political status quo, Andrew Schaefer will have readers cheering for their elected officials at a time when it may feel difficult to do so. He's a New York Times bestselling author and has been featured in the Washington Post, Entertainment Weekly, USA Today, Fox News, and more. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Nice to have you here.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, great to have you on. Uh, a great series. I guess my first question is: uh, you know, why, you know, this is the second book in the series. Uh, mm-hmm. Tell us about how the first, you know, how, why you decided and when to write these
1: two books or to begin the series. Yeah, it, go, it goes back a couple of years um, to when, uh, you know, Barack Obama and Joe Biden were in office, the, about the last month they were in office these internet memes started going around, which, um, you know, a little difficult to describe on the radio, but you had these pictures of Obama and Biden palling around, having a good time, you know, either in the White House, at basketball games, whatever, and they looked like the best of friends, and so people on the internet would imagine conversations between them, often with Barack Obama sort of chastising Joe. Joe would He'd be like, put away the laser pointer, Joe, you know, uh, during the meeting or something. And and Joe was always sort of this rascally little kid almost. And I thought, what if they really had like a playful, you know, relationship like that in real life? And since you can't write a book uh, about them just, you know, holding hands for (laughs) for 300 pages. Well, you could. I thought... (laughs)
2: Well, you could, it would
1: be a little, but there wouldn't be much conflict, right? Yeah. I thought, you have to throw in a mystery. And so, uh, you know, what I did with these, this pair of books is each book is its own sort of standalone mystery where they, uh, are coming together and, and solving a crime. And it's almost like a Sherlock and Watson dynamic because Joe Biden narrates the books while Obama is sort of the brains behind the operation, the Sherlock.
0: Andrew, so how did you research the book? Where did you get your information? I know it's fictional, but still, it's obviously based on. You sort of said it. You didn't exactly say it. The bromance, as they call it, between Biden and Obama. But where did all yeah, you right. were, Yeah, where did all your information come from? Uh,
1: yeah, I, I read all of their, you know, their autobiographies, memoirs, and especially with the Obama administration. There's been a lot of behind the scenes type memoirs that came out. Um, I've even talked to people that worked in the Obama administration, and and sort of picked their brains for details. Um, at, at a certain point, I think you have to stop. Uh, you can you can learn too much about someone when you you know when you know their favorite uh, drink, uh, their favorite breakfast cereal or something. You're like, how am I going to work that into a book? Um, surprisingly, though, I've you know been able to work in uh, Joe's favorite ice cream. And, and little details like that to give it, you know, believability. And I think if people buy into the small stuff, then they'll be along for the larger ride of the, you know, the, the murder mystery, which is completely fictional, I should say. I've had well, a couple of readers that have been a little confused on that point. So the murder mystery, completely fictional.
0: In other words, there have been some people, some of your readers, who have thought, well, oh, maybe this is true, this these investigators <laughs> Barack Obama uh, yeah, and Joe I, Biden I solving a murder mystery? I don't mystery. know if I call
1: them readers, but, you know, as soon as the headline goes out that Barack Obama and Joe Biden now solving crimes as amateur sleuths, people don't read the article, and then they respond to this on social media, like, they need to stay in their lane. They need to go back to being you know, politicians and leave the crime-solving up to police, you know? And I'm like, read the article, you know, <laughs> first <laughs> before you comment.
0: Uh, so we have a, and I think this is sort of the PR to your book too, is or PR for for this book anyway. Is you know in this political climate, when things are really nasty, I guess um, not. I guess they are. Uh, mm-hmm. Your book has been described as something that it's fun, it, it's in it's in good taste, it's good humor, and it's really. Can everybody uh, get into the book on both sides of the, of the aisle?
1: uh absolutely i i've i've had a lot of people on both sides um you know I, I i expected a lot of people on maybe the right side uh the conservatives to kind of you know be like oh i'm not going to touch that but uh, a lot of people pick it up and they'll be like hey i like mysteries i may not <laughs> may not have been a fan of these two in office Or it might be they're kind of fearing it's going to be political, but there's not much politics in it because at the end of the day, it's a story about two best friends, and it's sort of like the Hardy Boys—they're just solving mysteries together. So it's it's a lot more playful than it is political.
0: Okay, that that's a great way of describing it—playful, not political necessarily. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So this team—I mean, it's really interesting. I guess. At least I'm not aware of it. There are no other stories like that or fictional stories that have to do with the president and the vice president and this kind of a relationship, albeit fictional, uh, with a uh, little bit of nonfiction, I guess, sprinkled in. Um, it's kind of the first, isn't it? It's the first of its kind.
1: Um, I, you know, they're, 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 as far as that type of relationship goes, I think it, it's more like a, a buddy cop movie a sort of structure than it is uh, a lot of traditional, uh, you know, mystery books. Besides Sherlock and Watson, you really can't think of a lot of duos out there. Uh, They're all, you know, Miss Marple does it on her own, all these cozy mysteries. They're mostly people going alone. And this one's really about, yeah, a friendship and two people that that readers are already familiar with. Um, You know, there have been other uh, books and movies starring presidents. There's like a there's actually a really like a 22 book series of Eleanor Roosevelt solving crimes uh, written by her son, I believe. So there is, you know, there have been other political stuff like this. But but in terms of, you know, a, a pair of best friends out solving crimes like this, you don't you don't see that too often, I think, in the literary world.
0: Now, the dynamic duo. Now, I'm assuming mm-hmm. you have had some kind of a response from Barack Obama,
1: Joe Biden. Um, well, what happened was uh, I got – Joe Biden was coming through Kentucky uh, last year, and that's where I live uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, and he was coming through, and his people got a hold of me, and they said, hey, uh, Joe's going to be at this rally, uh, and you know he'd like to talk to you, and I was like – about and they're like he just like to talk to you and I was like uh oh you know <laughs> he saw the book and maybe he you know wants to say something about anyway when he came up to uh, me and my wife to talk to us at this rally uh, he's like he just said great job <laughs> and I said oh you read the book and he's like oh, I haven't read it yet but uh, you know great job on it. <laughs> so he 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 enjoyed the cover of the first book at least I know that and right, then, so uh, did he, get, he did yeah. something. Yeah, he he signed a copy of the book for me, which is something that I think a lot of authors don't have happen, which is the subject of their book, actually signing their book.
2: That's true. I, yeah, it's, yeah, usually it's your
0: people who read the book are the ones who are signing the book, right? All of your, your readers. Um, okay, so he approved, even though he hadn't read the book, which is interesting, mm-hmm.
2: but uh, maybe Jill had read the book
1: Um, You know, uh, what's interesting was that, Jill, I was listening to her memoir that she recently had come out, which is a great uh, story, and she mentions Hope Never Dies, an Obama-Biden mystery, in her memoir as an example of the public's fascination with the bromance between them, and she says, well, you know, they are as close as people think they are. However, they're not fictional detectives. So, um, and then she made a clarification. I also haven't read the book. (laughs) Now the question Uh, is
0: uh, why haven't they read the book? I I mean, because, you know, both of them are making these.
1: Yeah. It would be weird to read someone fictionalizing you and, and to be like, Oh, I wouldn't say that, or I wouldn't do that or something, you know? And I think, I think that might be a little strange.
0: Uh, But I would bet they would read the book. I bet at some point they are going to read the book. Well, this book, the second one, Hope Rides Again, literally just came out. So they have a chance to read it. Now, how does this, what do you think, impact or does it impact on Joe Biden now running for president of the United States?
1: Um, Well, you know, when I was writing the books, I didn't have any real idea that he would run. At least the first book, I was like, I kind of teased it a few times, like where he's kind of regretful, like, oh, I'm pretty sure I could have. I could have won the election if I had jumped in last time, and so you know, with the second book, it was looking like he was going to run, but it was still sort of fifty fifty I think and so i I kind of went back and forth in the book, but then once he finally announced, I went back and made a few corrections to where he was definitely leaning towards running so uh, it, it it was it was something that was happening along with writing the book and i didn't really have you know much thought into you know how that will affect the you know the third book i said i said there there, there there's possibly going to be a third book but right now it's called i hope there's a third book <laughs> because i you know i don't know what will happen with joe biden over the next year and and you know and that would result in a very different book if he were a front runner or if he had been sort of like this old gunslinger who had you know decided to go hang up his hat or something. I think, I think that's also a compelling story. Um, But, you know, what's a, what's a more compelling story for me is, isn't necessarily what's, you know, best for uh, the democratic party or the country. So, uh, so I, yeah, so I'm, I'm probably the worst person to answer that question because, (laughs) because I like, you know, I like the idea of the old gunslinger, uh, you know, walking off into the sunset and it just doesn't work if he's president.
0: Yeah, don't write. All right, hold back on that one, I guess. Uh, here's a question mm-hmm. you can answer. Um, do you think there are any or similarities, let's say, be between being a detective, like these guys are in the book, and being a politician?
1: Um, I think I think the only similarity is you have to know the law pretty well. Um, just because politicians are always breaking it, um, I, <laughs> uh, that's that's like half a joke. And, but I think a lot of politicians have been lawyers and so they know the law pretty well. Detectives know the law, but what's interesting about having a pair of people who are politicians trying to do detective work is, you know, they're used to delegating tasks. They're not used to doing stuff themselves. You know, they've got a whole staff working for them. They've got interns and, and, Doing detective work is legwork. You can't. You can't. You know, just go pay an intern to do something for you. You've got to do it yourself. And so that's interesting to me is putting these characters, uh, you know, the fictional versions of Obama and Biden into a story where they have to actually get their hands dirty. And sometimes it's interesting to see someone who's really good at one thing sort of bumble around at another thing. And you go, oh, they're actually a little more human than I thought. It's like watching Michael Jordan try to play baseball. It's like, oh, he's he, he's good at basketball, but he's not good at this other thing. But it's still kind of fun to watch.
0: It's fun to watch; makes you feel good. Um, also, <laughs> and it obviously, your your series makes a lot of people feel good, and really, you know, it, because they're so popular. New York mm-hmm. Times bestselling author. Why do you think? At this particular time, everybody's so interested in reading the kind of you know humorous story about you know real life people who are really in your face politicians for all of us. Um, but you you grab them with your story, and um, what do you think that is?
1: Well, I think I was a little worried about the first book because I thought people might view it as a joke. And go, oh, there's not much substance here. But I was like, I work to write, you know, it's not just a cover that's funny. That kind of grabs you and brings you in. You go, oh, look, you can clearly see there in this outlandish sort of, uh, on the new book, Obama's hanging from a helicopter by a ladder pulling Joe Biden from a boat uh, on Lake Michigan. And you go, oh, that's pretty crazy. Um, but does the story work? And at the end of the day, the story has to work. And so I spent a lot of time on these books, crafting the, the mystery and researching you know, the mystery elements and making sure that all comes together, because that's really what latches people onto the story and, and makes them want to keep reading it. And it's not just a joke. It's actually a, a, a fairly serious book uh, with a lot of funny moments in it. But I think it's 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 actually quite serious so it, it's a little shocking but it's also uh you know reading is is i think as popular as ever it's not you know it's not netflix binging levels of of popularity but um, it is uh you know it people were saying that you know reading was over as soon as radio came along and that was a while ago so um, you know, it's still around, and I think people find find reading is an escape. It's especially when you're distracted by your cell phone or this and that all day long. You know, it's it's an escape from all of that.
0: I would agree. I think re- uh, reading is here. Reading is still here, and probably here to stay. Uh, I think it's more that how and when and what you read on. I mean, I used to read. Mm-hmm. Uh, I download books now. It, I download books on my iPhone actually, and I can read that read them anywhere. So I'm still reading, but you know, it's just reading in a different um, what would you call it? A, not a different medium, but I'm reading on my cell phone or my iPad, maybe rather mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. reading a book book, a paper book. Um,
1: yeah, so, yeah, and yeah. I do the same. I read, I read a lot like that. My wife reads reads paper books. I read mostly, uh, yeah, books uh, books on an e book reader just because it's it's convenient for me and uh, and and you and the instantaneous nature of it. If you're reading a series, you can go from book one to book two to book three just right in a row. You don't have to, you know, leave your bed. What
0: about the so demographics? That's, that's like. <laughs> <laughs> what about the demographics, Andrew? I mean, do you have any idea? Are we looking at millennials reading your book, uh, wherever they're reading it, or uh, Gen X or you know, baby boomers,
1: I, or all of them? I don't have any idea, honestly, of the demographics because it really, it's really all over the place. Um, when I when I do events, I'm always you know, I'll always look out and see just a sea of people. That it's it's you know it could be age. Uh, gender, race—all very, uh, uh, very diverse uh, crowds, which is great because it—it's not just pulling on you know one. And all this really does well with one type of person, but but I you know I've noticed that that more so than a lot of other books that that I've put out. You know, a lot of men will pick up the book. Um, a lot of people will buy it for their their fathers or grandfathers for Father's Day or something because they go, hey. You know, he likes these type of thrillers and uh, he, you know, he hasn't read a book in five years. And then I oftentimes get like an email after that saying, oh, my God, it was so great to, you know, see dad pick up a book again. (laughs) And so it's it's interesting. People will just, you know, that that haven't read books in a while will pick it up quite a bit, which is which is just really just humbling, I think, for me.
0: What about the people in Kentucky? You said you're from Louisville. You and your wife, mm-hmm.
1: or you live there now. Um, yeah.
0: Are you originally from Kentucky?
1: Um, I'm originally from Iowa. So, yeah, I, I moved to, yeah. Sometimes I joke <laughs> that I moved to Kentucky to get away from politics because uh, you, Iowa's always in the presidential uh, election spotlight, of course, because it's the first uh, caucus in the nation. And so, yeah. Um, but, uh, yeah, I do live in, in Kentucky now, which is, which is a, a very red state. And I've had some people come up to me at readings on, like, maybe the coasts and say, oh, you're really brave to write what you write from Kentucky. And I said, well, you know, it's, I, I don't find that people are that in your face in real life as they are on social media about, uh, you know, about politics or about stuff that people are oh, we're so divided Uh, you know, you can, you, you go to, you know, you go for an ice cream cone or something, you look around the Dairy Queen and you go, are we really divided? And you know, ice cream brings us together, right? So, um, you know, I don't see there's, it's not like a, you're constantly going, oh, that person voted this way, that person voted this way. And so, uh, I, I just think that, you know, people get along a lot better in real life than they do online.
0: So you think online, the internet, all of that is somewhat, I'm calling it hype, I don't know what else to call it, but it really doesn't reflect what's happening in community, your experience, because you travel around the country, uh, promoting your book, you meet with people, you talk to people, uh, in all, I assume, you know, you mentioned before the show, you're in Chicago, yeah,
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I'll say, how many of you saw that thing that happened on Twitter yesterday where so-and-so said something to so-and-so or, or, you know, and, and like, you know, you know, two people out of 20 people may raise their hand. And I'll be like, really? Like, y'all didn't follow that? You know, like, like that was hyped up in the news. Like, like, oh, uh, you know, and, and so what happens online tends to kind of stay online, I think, for the most part, and a lot of people are just kind of disconnected from that. They're listening to other stuff, you know, they're listening to, you know, podcasts and radio and, and 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 watching, you know, television and stuff, but as far as social media goes, I find that people kind of tune it out for the most part, I think, and I think, you know, I think that's a good thing. I think that social media is fine and it's fun, but it has its place, and And, um, and anymore, it just feels like people are just sort of yelling at their own sort of, you know, silos and they get stuck into, you know, one sort of, uh, silo of just information and, and these other news sources and stuff really go outside of that. And it's not just soundbites, you know, if you listen to a podcast, you can listen to a half hour, you know, and you're, you're getting a, a much better discussion than just 200 and... 40 characters or whatever it is on Twitter.
0: That's good to hear. I mean, coming from you particularly. So let's talk about the election. What do you think? Well, so what is the influence, do you think, if people aren't actually, don't really perhaps, uh, aren't as divided as you're describing it in person? Um, There's lots more diversity of thought, whether you're in New England or in Kentucky or in the South. So what does that say in terms of the election and, you know, getting on the internet, getting our, our, getting information about what's happening. You know,
1: it, the, the strange thing is, is once I think the more you narrow your choices down, the more you, you are kind of dividing people and you're like, well, you either have to pick choice A or choice B here, you know, and with a presidential candidate, the, you know, candid it's, 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 it's never more stark than it is around election time where I have two choices and, and, uh, somehow, I have to make that you know project all of my values or whatever onto that person, and make that my person. So I think that that you know that's why around the election time or the presidential elections are so heated because people have to make that binary choice. But it, you know, in real life, they don't. You you're, you're often given a whole bunch of choices. Um, you know, even right now with the Democratic uh, you know presidential campaign, you have a whole buffet of choices here. And so even Democrats are like, well, I kind of like that one. I kind of like that. I kind of like her. I kind of, like You know, even people that say, oh, I really like Joe will also say, you know who else I really like too. And you're like, you know, it, it, there's not, there's not as much sort of infighting going on, I think, uh, when you have more choices available, but yeah, I, you know, and I do worry about how stuff heats up online, especially around election time and, and, and but, uh, I, th- I think that it's it's just almost it's very focused to that one thing. I don't I don't just don't see that carrying over into daily lives that often.
0: What and I want to kind of like get your background because uh, and how did you become an author? I mean, what made you? I mean, I assume you. I'm, well, I'm making the assumption you went to college, you majored yeah. in something. When did yeah? Okay. Um,
1: yeah, I was a was an English major in college uh, at the University of Iowa. So I got uh, taught in creative writing classes by the Iowa uh, Writers' Workshop students, and I took a summer semester at the Writers' Workshop. I didn't really continue on grad school for writing though, um, but I. Uh, you know, it's I, this is my 10th book that I've got coming out here. And so it's it's been, I do about a book a year or so, and and it's just taken a while to sort of build that career up from book to book to book. And, and each one of my books is usually pretty different. So this is the first one I've done that's like a second in a series. Um, my previous books have been, I, I did one book about How to Survive a Sharknado, about the SoFi Channel Sharknado series. So I did another book about... Um, ghostbusters it was a tie into the ghostbusters movie in 2016 so i've done a little bit of everything in, in writing the books keep changing from year to year but this is the first time i've done like the second you know in a series and so it's been it's been the first time i've really had readers carry over from one one book to the next
0: so as you said the books keep changing but i assume that after each book that you've written then that changes you as well
1: Oh yeah, I, the reason I I really love to write is I get to do a lot of reading. I get to do a lot of research. So every book I write, I you know I'll spend probably about as much time writing it uh, doing research as well. So and that's just you know pick up twenty books from the library or from the used bookstore or from a, a, another bookstore and you you just read through them all and you do research and you you find different you know. A, uh watch documentaries and you just um, immerse yourself in in that world and it's so fun you know at a certain point of course you have to say oh well, I better start writing this book but until that point uh it's 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 a fun job to get you know to get paid to to read and so you know that was my original thing you know where I I was a kid I loved to read and then I loved to write because I thought hey everybody who reads then you know writes their own story and you realize that as you get older, oh, well, everybody sort of abandons that sort of playful part of their nature at some point. And I guess I just got stuck in it.
0: Well, we have a couple of minutes left, Andrew. And, well, congratulations on obviously these two books hit series. Oh, and I hope you. you continue with it no matter what happens in the presidential election. So, since a couple of minutes left, give us information where we can go to to get, uh, you know, to learn more about you your series, your books uh, and what you're doing. And also because I think you're doing your promo across the country for this book, um, where can we see you in person?
1: Yeah. um, I'm right now I'm in the midst of a a 28 city book tour, which is just huge and massive. And you really don't mount book tours this large anymore, but somehow uh, every time my publisher came to me and said, would you love to go here? And I was like, yes, yes, yes uh it just uh, the, the the dates started piling up and 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 i made sure i was like make sure we get the midwest on there too you know so so i'm going everywhere from you know n- new york and dc and philly to the west coast la portland seattle san francisco and then and then doing a bunch of stops in in the midwest uh, is there a, w- a website and, that
0: we can go to cuz we do have we have 30 yeah. seconds left where we can hook it yeah up.
1: it's just <laughs> Andrewshafer.com, S-H-A-F-F-E-R.com. So, and if you can't spell that, just type in Hope Rides Again in Google and I'm the first one that comes up.
0: Great, we got it. Thanks so much for being on the show today. It was great talking to you.
1: Yeah, great talking to you. Thanks so much.
0: Yeah, bye. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation
0: Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is Jody Millman, JD, author, attorney, and uh, her new book is The Midnight Call. Everyone dreads the terrifying call that comes in the middle of the night. Your worst fears could be realized. Your life changed forever in the minute it takes to answer. Jesse Martin never expected to hear the word murder on the other end of the line. That ringing phone was the sound of an ill-fated trajectory that would tilt her world, throwing her life into free fall in Jody Susan Millman's Heart pounding courtroom thriller. Her new book was shortlisted for the Clue Award and was des- designated as Best Police Procedural by ShantireViews.com. She's an attorney who blogs about publishing law and is the co host and co producer of the popular podcast Backstage with the Bard Avon. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Jody. Nice to be here, Catherine. Right, that midnight call does sound pretty terrifying. Uh, even this is a courtroom thriller, uh, is and you know as I described it. But is it based on a true story? Or I mean, you're a lawyer, uh, so I'm assuming that you've had maybe similar kinds of real life
2: circumstances happen Well, to that's you? actually a two prong question. The okay. first question to answer the first question is that the murder was inspired by a brutal homicide that occurred in Poughkeepsie, New York in 1979. And similar to The Midnight Call, the true crime was committed by a popular teacher who brutally maimed and butchered a student who was randomly trespassing through his backyard late one night. So the actual incident is personal to me, because I, first of all, I was a student of the teacher who committed the murder. Um, In 1969, I was um, a student at Forbes Junior High School here in Poughkeepsie, and we had a very popular teacher. His name was Albert Fentress. And then uh, fast forward 10 years later, after I graduated from law school, I opened up the Poughkeepsie Journal, and boom, there's his picture on the the masthead indicating that he's being held in connection with a student's death. So it was really kind of, the the story really kind of was inspired by something that, that hit me very personally.
0: So, what was your reaction? I mean, how did you feel? I mean, that's when you. I mean, you you describe the situation, but just your, you know, your teacher accused of murder.
2: Like, what went through your head? Right. Well, it was it was absolutely shocking. It was shocking because Phenterus was one of those teachers that everybody adored. I mean, he was a really intelligent guy, very charismatic. When we were in class, if we were studying India. He'd set up a huge Indian banquet, and we'd have to wear saris, and the guys would have to wear Nehru jackets. I mean, he, he would come dressed up as um, um, historical figures in order to capture our attention. And so we really loved and admired the teacher. And then <laughs> to open up the Poughkeepsie Journal and see his paper there, it was his picture there, it was totally shocking, and it was really unfathomable for us. You know, at that time Don't. I was, you know, in my mid-20s, But now, as an adult, and I reflect back, to me, it's even more shocking now that, first of all, I was in this class, and was I in danger at that particular time? You know, were any of my friends in danger at that particular time? Um, It was just a really kind of a a shocking situation to be in.
0: Well, now that you've had, uh, uh, you know, time has passed, and you're looking back at it, do you... Go over your experience or your relationship with him piece by piece, and say, "Oh, this was that was actually there that kind of behavior, but I wasn't able to recognize it." Because you know, when people commit these kinds of crimes, we always, often we see on the um, on TV with neighbors saying, "You know, this is like a really nice guy, and we never expected it." But and that seems to be an occurring theme from people who knew you know, these kinds of, well, let's say, this kind of murder situation with, right. with your teacher. Yeah.
2: You know, and, and that's exactly how I felt. And, and you know, it's, it's the type of thing that now when you look at his personality and you look at, um, I mean, he was a pretty uptight kind of guy and he was very fussy and, he, and finicky and demanding. He was a very demanding, intellectually demanding teacher. You could see that some of the signs were there. But as a 14-year-old, you don't see it. Do you know what I mean? Because you're yeah. you're in the situation. You're ninth grade. You you most students revere their teachers at that particular point, and you're not looking for clues now. As an adult, I can look back and see where some of the signs perhaps were there, and maybe I even saw I even recognized that when the, the murder occurred in 1979. Yeah. So. I'll be,
0: Fourteen, and then fast forward. You've you've had many lots of experiences, right? That kind of break, kind of well affect how you can now look at at his behavior when you were fourteen Correct. years old. That is scary thinking about he could have done something to you or done something to your friends. Um,
2: so okay, so that's you know, is we're talking through community because yeah. when you, you have a teacher who's revered, I mean, he's part of the entire community. It wasn't just me. You had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of students that you know, he was in contact with. So um, from that perspective, it was, it was very shocking and traumatic for our community and continues to be because he's, uh, he's, in, he's not incarcerated, but he's in a mental health facility and has the option of seeking to be released every two years. And his next um, application can be made in April of 2020. So every two years, it's like ripping the Band-Aid off because it's on the front page of our paper again.
0: And so what does the community do about that? I mean, obviously there must be repercussions. Do they, uh, is there anything that they do or anything that happens every two years when they think that he could be out on the streets
2: again? Well, I think under the law they have the right to um, submit letters to the review board you know, to um, indicate whether or not he should remain um, in the institution. And I know that the district attorney's office here in Poughkeepsie is very active in trying to keep him in the hospitals, the hospital system. So you know, again, it's, um, it's again, it's just kind of a recurring. Um, it's a sad. It's a very sad story. And but you know, out of that I I, I wanted to stress that my my story is not really retelling of this particular murder. What I did was I took the seedling of a teacher murdering a student, and then created my whole cast of characters around that. So none of the, all of my characters are fictitious. It's just that one little seedling that kind of motivated me and inspired me to write this particular tale. All
0: right. So let's talk about your characters um, that that you've created. And they are different, as you say. They're fictitious. You know, it's fiction. So, um how, you know, in terms of your characters, how do you create them? What's the process, uh, starting with this seed of this example of what happened to you when you were 14, or your teacher anyway, um, and then brings you to this point to write the book?
2: Well, what I wanted to do is I wanted to tell the story from three different points of view. I wanted the reader to be able to kind of get an inside view as to what it would be like to, to see through the eyes of different characters to analyze a crime. So I wanted to be absolutely accurate in the way that I portrayed the law. And as a lawyer, I, you know, that's why I chose to write a courtroom drama, a legal thriller, so that I could really bring my readers into that courtroom, into that particular crime. But when you write a story like this, you have different aspects of the story that has to be told. You have Jesse's story, and she's, of course, she's um, my protagonist. She's a young female attorney who's starting out and is pregnant and gets a call from her mentor, Terrence Butterfield, that he's murdered someone, needs her help. So there are certain facts and, that Jesse can tell you. jesse has got a deep emotional attachment to Terrence and also feels a duty as an attorney to protect him and to help save his life. So I wanted to capture that through my character of Jesse. Then we have Jeremy Kaplan, who is the unscrupulous uh, criminal defense attorney. I wanted him to be able to have direct contact with um, Terrence Butterfield, the killer. So he's the one, we kind of get to know Terrence through his interaction through Jeremy, and we also get to see that, that Jeremy and Jesse had... A prior relationship. And finally, my third character is Hal Samuel, who's the district attorney, who's the prosecutor. He and Jesse also have a past, but again, you're getting the prosecutor's version and view of a crime. So you're getting a 360 degree view of the crime from Jesse, Hal, and Jeremy's point of view. <laughs>
0: That's very clever. Uh, And uh, you mentioned when you're talking about Jessie, you said she was pregnant?
2: Yes. Yes, she's uh, like seven months pregnant, yes.
0: Okay, so how significant is that? Uh, Yeah.
2: Well, that creates... um, uh, I also wanted to have Jessie suffer from um, medical issues in connection with her pregnancy. And so it was also really important for me to get those aspects um, accurate, So fortunately, I have some very good friends who are um, So They were able to give me input as to, you know, I mean, of course, I've I've had children and I remember what it was like to be pregnant, but fortunately, I didn't suffer from any kind of maladies. And I wanted Jessie to have a malady, so I was able to speak with my friends and get some insight and kind of of create um, a situation that's created by the stress of her having to deal with um, her relationship with Terrence. Um, arise throughout the uh, th- throughout the novel, and it's kind of interesting because Jesse really is the the glue that connects all of the characters together she 's obviously got a relationship with the killer she 's had a past love relationship with the district attorney and a prior work relationship with the criminal defense attorney so she 's really the hub that really holds this book together
0: Jody, why do you think people are so fascinated with uh, we, we love courtroom thrillers I mean it, it seems to me I mean they, they are very popular they're sort of and, and, and murder and um, what mm-hmm. do you think yeah what's the reason for the popularity uh, for these kind of that's, that's this kind of really John- good
2: question and I, I've been giving that quite a bit of thought lately because I write um, an article uh, quarterly article for insync magazine, which is the Sisters in Crime uh, quarterly and I'm writing one now on courtroom drama. And I'm really thinking about that issue. What is so attractive about us? And I think it's the tension. Because when when you're in a courtroom scene, you don't know what the next question is going to be by an attorney or what the next answer is going to be by the person who's on the witness stand. There's a constant state of tension that draws us in so that we're literally on the edge of our seats waiting to see what's going to happen next, and that's really what I tried to create in my book. And, um, you know, as for courtrooms itself, I, I, I think it, we're all attracted to um, uh, not the seedier side of life, but we all live good lives. And, but then there's there's a uh, dark underbelly of society, and I think courtroom dramas bring us to that, uh, allow us to view that, that dark underbelly of society at a very safe level. You know, we're removed yeah. from it. We're not in it. So it, it, we're
0: not in it. We have our, I don't want to say mundane necessarily, but some we may perceive our lives as mundane. And this gives us excitement. Yeah. As you say, drama. Um, now, as an attorney, you, you practice and you also have a podcast. But And what made you decide, now I'm going to start writing?
2: Well, you know, I'm, I'm really semi-retired at this point. Um, I started practicing in 1979, but I started working in law offices like when I was in high school. So I've been working in, in the legal profession for a long, long time. Um, what, what drove me to write this particular story was that I, it was always in the back of my mind, even when I was practicing law. It was like one story that kind of, it, it clung to me. And it also was like a dark cloud over the community. So I felt that this was a story that I wanted to tell. It just seemed like a natural fit for me. And honestly, I mean, it's, um, if you look at, I, I have a master's also in English literature, and if you look at a lot of the great writers, um, like James Fenimore Cooper, Mark Twain, a lot of these guys had legal backgrounds, which is kind of interesting. So that was kind of an incentive to me to say, okay, well, if they can do it, I can do it too. Um, but then, when I sat down to to write the story, I kind of said, "Okay, I'm a lawyer. I'm going to write what I know," and that's what led me to write, you know, a legal thriller.
0: Yeah. Well, you're also a blogger. Did the blogging come yeah. first or after? Yeah.
2: F, F, definitely afterwards. Yeah, yeah. The, the blogging was blogging, as you may or may not know, is it's, you're stretching a different muscle. You know, when you're writing fiction you're you're involved, you're really like in another world. You know, you're kind of daydreaming and you're, you know, writing down thoughts and you're just kind of letting your mind go. It's very stream of conscious. Where when you're blogging, I feel it's much more like writing a term paper, at least for me, because I like to write about a publishing law and things that I, um, and aspects of um, the writing industry that writers may not have access to, which is publishing law.
0: So that's your nonfiction, and that's, as you say, totally different. Yeah. yeah. Like writing a term paper.
2: I've also written a guide to Broadway, too. Um, I know, which is like totally (laughs) separate from all of this stuff. But um, in 1978, my dad came out with a book called Seats New York, and it's a guide to all the Broadway theaters with seating charts and and how to get free parking. It's like a Zagat's guide to Broadway, and then it became a bestseller. But unfortunately, my dad unexpectedly passed away at the time the book came out, and it became a bestseller for the publishing company. So they contacted me, and they said, look, um, you know, will you go on tour? Will you talk about the book? And by the way, would you be interested in doing the next editions? So I did a couple of editions um, subsequently um, of the Seats, the Seats uh, a Guide Series, and In 2008, I wrote the last one. I said, you know what? I really want to write fiction. I really want to tell this story. So that's when I started to really get serious about writing The Midnight Call.
0: Well, the seats, it sounds like that's a precursor to the information you can get on the Internet now.
2: It was. At the time, you could not get it. I mean, we literally had to call and visit every single Broadway theater and every single, like, the Metropolitan Opera House and and Yankee Stadium, I mean, we went to every single venue, and this is before the Internet.
0: You know, you Jodi, you said you're semi-retired. It doesn't yeah. sound like you're the kind of person who would be retired in any way, semi or otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> I
2: mean. From the practice of law, let me put it that way. You know, I, I, do, I practice friends and family law, you know, like closings and parking tickets for friends, but I'm busy doing other things, writing, and I'm involved with philanthropy and, um, you know, my podcast, so life is busy. It
0: sounds very busy, and it sounds like you're just, I mean, well, as I say, not retired, but going forward, taking your, what's taking, and I think people tend to, well, they want to do that now, take all of those skills, you're a lawyer, and just put those skills into very different, perhaps,
2: venues than you even ever thought about, right? Um, Absolutely. and And also, I think that people have an obligation to give back. I know that, you know, when I was practicing law, I was on, you know, a lot of boards and also uh, was active in, in the politics in the community. And now that I've finished practicing law, I'm able to, you know, return the favor to some of those um, organizations by giving time and energy, you know, and, and helping them out now.
0: Yeah, I think that's very important. I think that's very typical or more typical, let's say, of uh I'll say our generation, because um, I include myself in your generation. I wonder right. if the millennials feel the same way. I mean, and you can't tell maybe, perhaps until they get older, but whether they have that, are instilled with those same kinds of values.
2: Well, I think they are, because if you look at what's going on in politics now, um, they're raising their voices. I mean, I think you have a very active community of people who, you know, aren't going to take what's going on. Um, in our country right now, and they're making their voices known, especially if you look at women's rights. You see a lot of young women who are being stripped of their rights in several states, and they're going crazy and they're making their voices known. And they have to because those laws are affecting them. I mean, uh, you know, the abortion laws aren't really affecting you and I. I mean, they're really too old. we're too old for that. But these gals, it's affecting their everyday lives, and they're, they're making their voices heard. I think it's fantastic.
0: But also, I think maybe they're not affecting our lives directly, but ma- indirectly, it does affect our lives, right? It affects our communities. Oh, theoretically, and, and, oh, yeah.
2: theoretically, it does. I mean, that's a whole that's a whole other issue. Yeah, yeah, that's that's impression <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> that's as far as you're going to go with it. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I could go on and on. Yeah, I mean. Um, but, but we're talking about my book, not about my book. We're talking about news. your book,
0: but we're, we've evolved. Yes, we are. Okay. Um, but this is, a, well, the, one of the characters in your book is pregnant. So it, it's right. sort of a, yeah. So we, that, that's a you know, issue I mean, related you know, to that, right?
2: You, you and I are of the generation where, you know, Roe versus Wade was such an important um, uh, uh, the Supreme Court case in our lives. And it really opened up the door to, you know, women's liberation and women's strength. And, I mean, I'm, a, I'm really an advocate, a feminist. I mean, when I went to law school, it was, it was in the 60s. And it, I was in the first class at Syracuse that was under the Equal Employment Opportunity Act, which meant at, prior to that time, they did not have to have a certain percentage of women attending law school. And I was fortunate to be in that group where they were required to have 30% of women In my law class. So I've been deeply affected by um, women's rights because I was able to take advantage of it. And then when I graduated from law school and I came back here to practice in Dutchess County, I was one of six women practicing law. And most of the women who were practicing at that time were like in their, their 60s and 70s. These were women who were really pioneers. So I've really been you know, involved. I've been very fortunate, and I'm I'm a strong advocate of women's rights. And it really, it really. Um, I wish there was more that I could do to, to you know to stop this the stripping of women's rights because it's it's not right. I mean, we're yeah. equal just like everybody else.
0: Yeah, I, I you know whatever. I completely agree with you, and I was in very similar positions when I was actually I went to law school for. Two months and then uh, went in the Peace Corps (laughs) and I have a whole history and came back and actually became a therapist. So I did not go back to law school, but was part of all that, uh, you you know, the politics of the time, just what you're talking about um, at Mm -hmm. Boston University. You were at Syracuse. I was at Boston University. Um, Yeah. So I I, I just sit here and I wonder, how did we get to this point, though? I mean, it it just seems like, uh, I mean... That's, I guess, that's just my question. How did we get to this point where young women or women are being stripped of their rights in in twenty nineteen?
2: You know, what I don't understand is that if you look at the legislatures of some of the states that are that are changing the laws, um, there there are women legislators, and I don't understand how they how they can stand by and let this happen. And then you have people like Susan Collins, who's uh, flip-flopping all the time. You no, know, she's going to say, okay, I'm not going to support Trump. I'm going to block, you know, I'm going to block whatever he does. But then again, she flips. So I have no idea what's going on. To me, it's total insanity. It really is. And it's, it's, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for, I think, any of us to open up the paper and see what's going on today. You know, I mean, sometimes I just can't even turn on the news because it's just... Total, utter chaos. And I do not know how we got here.
0: Well, then you didn't answer the
2: question <laughs> I wanted you <laughs> to tell me. How did we get here? Okay, so we have... I don't know. To get, I, I, yeah. I don't know how we got here. I really don't. I mean, I didn't do anything to make us get here. And fortunately, I live in New York, which is a very liberal state. You know, I don't know. I do not know.
0: Yeah. I, I guess that's something we have to think about. Uh, we have three minutes left for the end of the and then it's the end of the interview. So, but we I do want more information about you and because you are doing a lot of different kinds of things about your blog yeah. where we can yeah and your um, website and, and the books. Where can we
2: Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, let me tell you a little bit about I've got a website. It's com, and that's J O D E. A lot of people don't know how to spell Jody. Um, and people can go there. My tour schedule is there. I've got an excerpt from the book, um, and also they can keep up on news and events and sign up for uh, my newsletter. People can follow me on Facebook at Jody, Millman, Jody Susan Millman Author, and I'm also on Instagram at Jody Millman Author. So I, I'm you know, reaching out to people on social platforms, and people can email me through my website, and I'm more than happy to get back to them. I love responding to people, and I love hearing people who have read the book. And, you know, I, it's it's very interesting about people reaching out to me. It's It's been wonderful.
0: Well, it's been great talking to you today. Um, just uh, The Midnight Call is the title of the book, and we've been talking to Jody Millman, and she's an attorney, a blogger, amongst many, many other things. Thanks so much for being on the show.
2: Oh, Catherine, thank you. And I'm so glad we were able to talk a little politics. I love it. Yeah, we did. (laughs) Yep. Um, And thanks for promoting the book. I appreciate it. I really do. We'll talk to you again. Thanks.
0: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.